Our first reading today is from Exodus 29:39. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. Our New Testament reading is from Hebrews. I'm going to read uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through this curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over uh, the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. But let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not not neglecting to meet together, as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And our sermon text today is back in Exodus chapter 6. We're going to pick off where we left off. Buckle up for this one. Uh, Not the most exciting reading. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, The Israelites have not listened to me. Why should Pharaoh listen to me, poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. The following are the heads of the ancestral houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. The following are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their genealogies, Gershon, Kohath, and Merirah. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershom, Libni and Shimei by their families, the sons of Kohath, Amran, Esor, Hebron, and Uziel, and the length of Kohath's life was 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malhili, and Mushi, these are the the families of the Levites according to their genealogy. Amram married Jochebed, his aunt, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, and the length of Amram's life was 137 years. The sons of Issar, Korah, Nephik, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Amonadab, and sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadad, Abihu, Elazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abasaph. These are the families of the Korites. Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the ancestral houses of the Levites by their family. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, company by company. If they spoke, It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, the same Moses and Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, that I am speaking to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I am a poor speaker, why should Pharaoh listen to me? All right, so we are continuing our story of uh, the study of the book of Exodus. 
And at this point in this story, we are getting ready, we are preparing for that climactic battle between Moses and Pharaoh, where God is definitely, will definitively answer Pharaoh's question, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Now, the next seven chapters of Exodus are like super exciting. They're going to be filled with these awesome signs and wonders and plagues and the parting of the sea. You know, all the things that when we think about uh, Exodus, we kind of associate, you know, the things that come to our mind. And these next chapters have got to be some of the most dramatic parts of the whole Bible. And it's no wonder the Exodus story is so often told and retold, made into movies and that kind of thing. Uh, it's this part of the story that captures our imagination and leaves us with these, you know, visible images. I mean, frogs falling from heaven. I mean, that's cool. Um, so, you know, it's pr- really exciting, you know, and it's a great story because, you know, it has, it has all these great elements of what makes a story. I mean, you know, we have this exiled, failed and reluctant shepherd living in the middle of the wilderness who's being called to return to Egypt to challenge the might of the powerful Pharaoh, uh, for the purpose of freeing people from slavery. I mean, what's better story than that? And then on top of that, we have all these uh, supernatural, miraculous demonstrations of, of power, you know, to this arrogant Pharaoh. It's just a perfect story. And so far, um, Exodus has done like an amazing job of setting us up, you know, for this climatic, epic battle that we know is all coming. Um, you know, we have uh, the obstacle that needs to overcome, you know, Egyptian slavery. We have an epic villain in Pharaoh. We have dramatic stories of defiance and, you know, the actions of the midwives and of uh, Moses' mother. And, you know, we have the, the, the basket uh, in the, the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter being the unwitting, you know, uh, heroine of salvation here. We have uh, the unlikely reluctant hero, Moses. Uh, we have the dramatic call scene at the burning bush, you know, where this, you know, the, the creator of all the universe comes and reveals this mysterious name, Yahweh. And we have all these, you know, philosophical ideas about like what that even means. And, you know, it, it, and all of this is all set in even this like bigger story of Genesis, which is like cosmic and grand and all about humanity and the redemption of creations itself. Which is interesting because all of a sudden, as we are building up, we have our passage today. And, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but it's kind of boring and, like, weird, right? I mean, like, I read a bunch of names, and you're probably like, what in the heck is going on here? Like, why, why didn't we just skip over this, right? I mean, you probably are a little surprised. Actually, I'm a little surprised I didn't skip over this too. I mean, like, let's get to the battle, right? Like, why did we stop here? This doesn't seem like good writing. Uh, we have a, a, this weird genealogy. Uh, you know, at the, we, we had a little bit of a genealogy at the beginning of Exodus, but that kind of made sense because we need to know where the Israelites came from. We need to know why they're in Egypt. But like, why now? Why put this genealogy here? It seems out of place. It's not dramatic. Uh, you know, it's not really interesting. So what is it doing here? And, you know, my plan was to skip right over it. Last week, I uh, had just kind of previewed ahead what I was going to do for this sermon. And I was like, well, clearly, I'm just going to skip over this geology or genealogy. I'm going to start on chapter seven. And I'm going to say, hey, everybody, I just want you to know I skipped over genealogy. 
not important, right? That's what I was going to do. Um, and I began to see something. At, I, I asked some questions, you know, which is always, uh, you know, that's, that's always a, a thing to do. You know, I asked some questions about this genealogy, and I started asking, why is it here? Why now? And I started realizing, I think that's the point. I think there's a point to this genealogy being included right here, and let's just like taking a beat and stopping all this action. And, you know, kind of like, like I, as I started to, to think through these questions and ask, I started to see what, what I thought was the point that was trying to be made here. And it's not really like the most exciting or interesting point, but I do think it's like a really important and practical one. So that's what I'm going to share with you in the sermon today. But let's build up to that. Now, the first thing to notice about this passage is that it begins and ends with the concern of Moses about his speech. Okay, uh, we've already heard this before, uh, but Moses uh, brings this uh, uh, idea about his speech impediment up again. And I think this is actually a key point to understanding uh, what we are supposed to do with this genealogy. Um, so in, we have a special term for a block of text where similar material is placed at the beginning and the end. So this is like a common uh, literary device that we see used in the Hebrew Bible and actually a lot of ancient texts, okay? So you have the same uh, idea, similar ideas put at the beginning and end. And it both has to do with the speech impediment of Moses and him complaining about it, right? So, it, so, so in the business, we call this an inclusio, okay? So this is an inclusio, right? Bear with me here. This will lead somewhere. So remember that the Bible didn't originally have chapter divisions. You know, we added those like much later, right? And so instead, because the Bible didn't have chapters, the way they marked off a section of text was using literary devices like the inclusio. So when we have an inclusio, that tells us, hey, you're supposed to read this text together. You're supposed to think of this the way we would think of a chapter. Now, what that means for our passage today is that since this genealogy is between these two related texts about Moses' poor speaking abilities, what the text wants us to do is read these together. It's telling us these are related. Now, uh, that doesn't seem right. Like, it doesn't seem like we should relate these texts together. But I think that's the point. The inclusio is singling this, uh, that it's related. And if it doesn't seem immediately obvious to us how they're related, then what the text wants us to do is figure it out. It wants us to put some work into it. It's a way, in other words, it's a way of trying to engage us. It wants to suck us in. It wants, to, it wants us to meditate on it. It wants us to do exactly what I just did, which is read this text, think, ah, that's weird. Why put a genealogy there? And then ask questions and kind of work through it, okay? So I think that the, the, the weirdness of it is exactly the point. So let's look at what's going on here. So the passage starts in verse 10 with, uh, with Yahweh reiterating the command for Moses to go to Pharaoh and demand Pharaoh to send away the Israelites. And you'll remember that Moses had done just that and it didn't go very well. Uh, Pharaoh had emphatically rejected Moses' request for the Israelites to leave Egypt to celebrate a short festival. And now things were much worse for the Israelites. Uh, their their uh, work uh, load had been increased uh, as a response 
to Moses' insolent request. And now Yahweh wants Moses to go back and ask for a complete and unconditional release of the Israelites. Well, of course, uh, he knows that is not going to go over too well. And so Moses goes back to this issue of this speech. Now, uh, if you'll remember back in chapter 4 when Moses brought this up, we think that this speech problem is not just like Moses has a fear of public speaking, okay? It's likely that we're talking about, like, he has a real physical speech impediment, you know, who knows exactly what. Uh, you know, he uses this term, uh, he says his lips are uncircumcised. And we think that that may indicate a physical defect. It's kind of hard to know because that phrase uncircumcised is used metaphorically quite a bit throughout the Old Testament. But it does seem like I think that this is more than just like he's not a good public speaker or he's scared uh, to speak in public, you know, which which I get. Um, But in any event, Yahweh repeats his charge to Moses and Aaron that despite uh, Moses' poor speaking ability, he needs to go before Pharaoh. And then after this, we get this genealogy. And then once again, uh, Yahweh commands Moses to speak before Pharaoh. And Moses again raises this issue about his poor speech. So that's the question. What does this genealogy have to do with Moses and his concern about his poor speaking ability? Now, it's a great question because it's not really obvious at all how a speech impediment and a genealogy could be related to one another. And so to answer the question, we need to look a little bit harder at the genealogy. So verse 14 begins with a record of the sons of Reuben. Now, Reuben, we're told here, was Israel's firstborn son. Okay, that's a little confusing, but remember, Israel was the name given to Jacob. Uh, Jacob wrestled with God. God gave him a new name and said his name is now Israel. Uh, Reuben is his firstborn son. So uh, famously, there are 12 uh, sons of Jacob, and they make up the the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, In verse 15, we have a record of Simeon, the second-born child of Jacob. And then starting at verse 16 and going all the way to 26, we are told about the family of Levi. And the genealogy um, uh, only stops there. Okay, so we don't have any of Jacob's other nine sons. We get his first three sons, then we get Levi's, uh, who, Levi's children, and we don't go into any of the other nine of Jacob's son. Now, that's kind of weird. In fact, there's two things that are weird about gene- this genealogy. First, it's, all, it's partial, right? It only includes the, the first three sons of Jacob. And since the 12 tribes of Israel was like really important to these people, um, it was really important to their identity, it's really weird that the rest of the brothers were omitted. And then second, uh, the genealogy of the first two sons is only one generation deep. Okay? But, uh, you know, you, you read there, we have the four sons of Reuben, we have the six sons of Simeon, and that's it. We don't get anything about their kids. Uh, there's no record of their children. Then we come to Levi, and the genealogy goes five generations deep. Now, what this tells us, the point of this genealogy is actually to highlight the family of Levi. Levi is being singled out here. Levi is who we want to pay attention to. And in this story of Exodus, there's two really important things you need to know about the family of Levi. First, as you uh, probably noticed in the genealogy, Moses and Aaron belong to the family of Levi. And we are told their parents' names for the first time in Exodus. So their parents' names are Amran and Jacobad. And, you know, I'm just 
pointing this out just an FYI. The name Jochebed, so that's Moses and Aaron's mother, right, is really interesting because Jochebed actually incorporates the name Yahweh into her name, okay? And so, you know, it's really weird for weird historical reasons involving the Germans, like everything in the Bible that starts with a Y is actually translated as a J. So like uh, Jochebed is really how you pronounce it. So Yah, Yahweh, right? And then Abed, which, uh, or Kabed, which means something like glory, okay? So Yahweh is glorious. So she's like the, one of these first examples of these names that actually incorporates Yahweh. Now, You'll notice that um, one thing that you, you would probably be surprised here is that this genealogy doesn't follow Moses' line. Okay, we don't get anything about Moses here. It tells us Moses' name, it tells us Moses' parents, it doesn't tell us anything about Moses' kids, which is also interesting because we know he has at least two already. Um, and then we get to Aaron, and it goes on and on for another few generations. Now, here's what you may or may not know about the descendants of Aaron. They're super significant, and they become really important players throughout the Torah. So all of these names of Aaron's children, like, are going to be important, okay? And this is actually kind of weird. It's in contrast to Moses' family. Moses' family is really not important from then on. Uh, the leadership of the Israelites doesn't pass down to Moses' son, as you might expect. In fact, you know, the next leader of the Israelites is Joshua. He's from like a whole different tribe. Uh, he's from a, 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 the tribe of Ephraim. Now, the, the reason the descendants of Aaron play such an important role in the Torah is because they are all priests. Okay, So all the priests of Israel come from Levi's line. They're all descendants of Aaron. And the Levite priests are going to play a huge role in the future of Israel because they are the ones responsible for leading the rituals involved worshiping Yahweh. Uh, so, in fact, the next book of the Bible, which, you know, we all know and love, Leviticus, that's why it's named Leviticus. It's named after them. So they get like a whole book of the Bible about them. So, okay, let's go back. Why is this genealogy here? So here's why I think it's placed here. Here's what Exodus wants us to understand. It wants us to understand the historical significance of the priest. And it's important because right here we have the foundation of the priesthood. And Exodus wants us, wants us to, wants to highlight this. In other words, the origin story of the priesthood, which is what we are given here, is just as important to Exodus as like the origin story of Moses. Like any one of us who like is into like comic books and superhero movies, right? We know origin stories are like super important right like we need to know like why our our, our hero uh like had its origin because that gives us an idea about their like motivation and their beliefs and like what they're about okay so here we're given the or, or uh, origin story though not of a person but of an institution the institution of the priesthood now why is that important okay that doesn't seem like a big deal but think about it so we're getting ready to enter this next chapter in this drama of Exodus with the plagues and the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the Red Sea, right? And all of these are great and amazing, and they made this incredible story. But before we get there, what Exodus thinks is super important is to take a beat, to take a pause and talk about the priesthood, and to do so specifically in relationship to Moses' inadequacy. And the reason I think this is the case is because sometimes we tend to think of history 
as driven by like great men, great heroes doing great things. Yeah, I say men because it usually is men, and uh, you know, right? And uh, it, it, you know, right? That's usually just how these things work, right? But the Bible is telling us this is an incorrect view, and I think Moses thinks this way too. Moses is thinking, like, I'm not a great man. I have a speech impediment. How can I possibly, you know, convince the Pharaoh to let my people go? He's not going to let me go. I'm not very good at this. And how, how can I be effective? And what this is, is this genealogy, you know, this boring genealogy about a family of priests is, is a rebuke to that thinking. Because what it's saying is it's trying to make the case that history is not driven by great men. Instead, it's, it's more driven by the ongoing life of this established institution and the offices represented by the priesthood. What Exodus wants us to understand that is awesome as the next part of the story is, um, it's only really setting us up for this like continual rhythm of worship that defines Israel. And the genealogy is placed at this particular part in the story because Exodus needs us to understand this key point. The story of God's redemption is bigger than just Moses and plagues and miracles, as important as they are. And this is the rebuke of the idea that God needs great heroes and mighty deeds in order to drive history. Speech impediments don't matter because Moses' effectiveness is not what the story is about. Moses is great. The plagues and the miracles are great. And the next chapters are exciting. But God's plan is bigger than Moses and the confront, his confrontation with Pharaoh. That part's important. It's necessary. However, it happens. It's over. It's done. It's inspiring. But it's not ultimately what is sustaining. What is important is what's represented by, repeat, by the priests. This long-term practice of spirituality where Israel and God are connected because that's what the Levites are meant to do. Um, Exodus ends with this like amazing picture of the glory of God moving into the tabernacle. And the whole point of that is so that God will be uh, with his people. Remember uh, last week when Yahweh says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the point of the Exodus. That relationship is the goal. Not so much to demonstrate like these awesome signs and powers. The relationship is the goal. And it's the job of these priests to aid the people in maintaining that relationship. All right. So maybe at this point, you guys are kind of like, I think I sort of see what you're saying. But is there maybe like a helpful analogy you can give to me to help clarify it? Well, I happen to have one. Okay. Let's think about a romance. Okay, like a romance. So, right, like a guy and a girl meet each other. And, you know, perhaps there's a few missteps along the way. Perhaps it's love at first sight. Who knows? But either way, the relationship starts to develop. And there's lots of firsts. There's lots of long conversations. Uh, you know, everything uh, deepens and becomes more intense. And it's exciting. And, you know, as we go forward, uh, this couple, uh, you know, they're going to tell the story of how they met each other. And, you know, what first drew them to one another. And that's like part of their identity as a couple. You know, uh, we, we, we can all think about this. I wish, uh, I, I know uh, Beth and Chris have like a great story that involves like an old car and trash being cleared out. Um, you know, we, we, we've heard this story, right? The, who, who know Beth and Chris, right? Uh, you know, we have this, yeah, I don't dare tell stories about us, right? I don't want to embarrass myself and I'm in charge, right? So I tell so stories about somebody else. But 
However, as this relationship deepens and perhaps the romance moves to a point where there's like a long-term commitment, then we enter a different phase of the relationship. And it involves things like what? Like dishes and laundry and cooking and giving kids baths, right? It's beautiful and it's important and it's where the relationship continues and where it flourishes. But, you know, it's not necessarily the stories we tell, right? Because it's kind of like ordinary. But it's that day-to-day, that ordinary part of the relationship that is what's being lived out and gives meaning and purpose to that, you know, romance, right? And the part we tell stories about is, like, crucial. It's important. It's necessary. But there can only be, you know, one first date. There can only be one first kiss. And so I think it's similar here. And I think this analogy works because, again, we're talking about a relationship. If you think back to the sermon, you know, we talked about the name of Yahweh. And part of the point of that name is it's about a relationship. The name Yahweh is future-oriented. It's known by experience. And that's why it has to be a relationship. It has to be experience in the future. Uh, likewise, our faith is more than knowing, you know, a set of doctrines that we can get right on a test. Rather, our faith is about that ongoing relationship that is experienced through our lives, but is experienced in like the normal rhythms of our lives. And I think that's the point that's being made here. Moses might not be a great speaker, but this plan is much bigger than Moses' inadequacies. You know, uh, it's much bigger than, than, you know, the stupid things we did, uh, you know, when we, uh, were, were, when we met, like, our spouse or something like that. I mean, like, in, in the case of me, uh, the first time I met Tamsin, I made fun of her name and where she was from. Like, in the space of, like, two minutes. Uh, so, you know, there's this, uh, there's this interesting discussion uh, in an ancient Jewish midrash. So the, the, the ancient, the, that's like a, a commentary on the Torah. And it goes like this. So there's a group of rabbis and they're debating the question of what is the most important verse in the Torah? So one rabbi suggests it's love your neighbor as yourself. And another one says, no, no, no. It's we're made in the image of God. So it's, it, it's you know, we, we need to love everyone or we need to care about everyone. It's talking about, you know, the universality of us as humanity. And another puts forward, uh, you know, the famous, uh, the, the Shema. Hear, O Lord Israel, our God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. You know, it's really about, it's really about God. And then the last rabbi puts forward our verse that we started off from Exodus 29. One lamb you offer in the morning, and one lamb you offer in the evening. And the Midrash here ends with uh, the final word given to this rabbi who says, uh, yes, the sacrifice of the two lambs is the correct answer. Now, that may seem weird, you know, the sacrifice in two, the, but the sacrifice of the two lambs was important for the daily ritual of the temple. And I think the reason that this is, uh, this is the correct answer here is because it sums up what the Torah is about. Because these, these sacrifices symbolize the ongoing relationship between God and his people. The daily, the consistent the constant ritual. And, I've, and as I've said before, you know, contrary to popular belief, the sacrifices aren't about like atoning for sin. Yes, there were some of them that were. But in Hebrew, the term for sacrifice is korban. It means draw near. In the Levitical system, these sacrifices were about maintaining the relationship between God and his people. The desire of God to be their God and for, his, and, and for them to be his people. And these crucial rituals about this relationship were maintained 
by this selected hereditary family, the Levites who were dedicated to this project. So what does that mean for us? Well, I think it's just like a really simple and practical point. We tend to focus on uh, grandiose events. You know, that's the ones we tell the stories about, just like we tell the stories about Exodus. You know, we tend to, to, to want these like mountaintop experiences. And you know what? Let's not take away the importance of those. Those are important. You know, we can all think of times when like God has just like, you know, some thought or some experience with our faith has hit us and it's been like meaningful to us, right? Like that's important, but um, they, are, uh, they are not the only thing about our faith. The ordinary and the consistent is also important. And we need to stop and think about that too. We don't need to sacrifice a lamb twice a day, but maintaining the rhythms of faith is something we can do. The faithfulness in small things, the kind of ordinary things that our church as a community is meant to foster. You know, weekly gatherings, Sunday school, teaching our children, weekly prayer emails, you know, service projects, small groups, potlucks, community, fellowship, all of those just normal everyday things. Like in the Exodus, this is an answer to the inadequacies of, of us all because it's not just about us. It's not just about us performing. The community of faith teaches us that we are part of something bigger, an ongoing story that is not dependent upon our uh, effectiveness. And so what I want to do is I want to close this by looking at this, our New Testament reading from Hebrews. Now, the author of Hebrews has just concluded his case that Jesus has fulfilled and completed the work of the daily, that the daily sacrifices and all the other rituals of the temple uh, and the Levites that pointed forward. Look at verse 19 through 21. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over God. You know, this is basically summing up like the whole book of Hebrews. And what it's about is how Jesus Christ has established this relationship uh, with God and how we are part of that. And that's exactly what the Exodus is about. Yahweh will be our God and we will be his people. And so the question then is, what do we do now? And that's what verses 22 through 25 tell us. We approach God. Uh, we hold to our hope in the future. We do good works. We meet together. We encourage other, uh, each other. You know, just like ordinary things. Uh, praying, looking to do good deeds, working together as a community for one another, uh, meeting together. That's the point. And if we see this as a point, then we need to be okay with not everything being a mountaintop experience. We need to be okay without like everything uh, needing to be perfect. And that we have to be like super effective. We don't need to be perfect of speech. Miracles and plagues are something we may never experience, but that's okay. That's okay. Because we still play a role in the story. The story is bigger than us in our inadequacies, right? And in doing so, we will be the people that God wants us to be and that the community that God wants us to be.